Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Senators J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown from Ohio are setting politics aside. The two are joining forces to call for health monitoring for residents of East Palestine. The ongoing crisis on the southern border was the focus of a House hearing yesterday. The terrible toll fentanyl has taken on the U.S. population took center stage. Twitter is tackling threats of violence with a new zero-tolerance policy. The new guidelines explain what happens to accounts breaking the new rules. Democrats seek to protect the right to unionize, while Republicans want to ensure the right to work without joining a union. How would the GOP's effort affect wages and union membership? Threats posed to the free world from the Chinese Communist Party. What can be done about it? A House Select Committee sat down yesterday for the first time to address just that. Greece last night, two trains collided, killing and injuring dozens. It was a passenger train carrying hundreds of people that collided with a freight train. Police say a local station master has been arrested. Here are the details. A local train station master has been arrested over the deadliest train crash to hit Greece in living memory. The man is denying any wrongdoing and has attributed the accident to a possible technical failure according to government and police sources. The passenger train and a cargo train collided head-on on on Tuesday night outside the city of Larissa, killing dozens and wounding more. Many of the victims are thought to be university students on their way back from a long holiday weekend. Fire officials say the death toll is expected to rise further. The passenger train was carrying over 350 people, and heading to the city of Thessaloniki on the Aegean coast, according to Hellenic train data. The government has declared three days of national mourning, with flags at half-mast. Greece's Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis visited the crash site on Wednesday. He's describing it as an unspeakable tragedy, and the government will do everything in its power to make sure it never happens again. Greece's aging railway system is in need of modernizing, and many trains travel on single tracks. Rail signals and automatic control systems still need to be installed in many areas. Another train accident, this one back in the States. A train carrying around 30,000 gallons of propane derailed in Florida's Manatee County. It occurred in an industrial area north of Sarasota Bradenton International Airport. The train consists of five rail cars carrying sheetrock and two propane tankers. The second of the two tankers derailed but managed to stay upright. Officials noted that clearing the tracks may take some time as they have to empty the tanker before they can move it. Reports say roughly 150 feet of track was left mangled. No injuries were reported and no leakage has been found yet. The Tampa Bay Times reports that crews will continue to monitor the situation as cleanup efforts begin, including monitoring the air quality. The news outlet says the freight train is operated by Florida's Seminole Gulf Railway and was minimally staffed. The exact cause of the derailment is unclear. The fire rescue chief noted that the area may be evacuated when the propane is offloaded due to potential danger. U.S. Senators J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown from Ohio want health screenings for East Palestine residents. The two teamed up to write a letter urging the EPA and the CDC to start those immediately. 
NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the aftermath of the toxic train derailment. Authorities released and burned vinyl chloride from five train cars on February 6th. Vinyl chloride is a chemical used to make PVC pipes and other products. The National Cancer Institute says that vinyl chloride has been linked to multiple cancers, including brain, lung, and blood cancer. Residents of East Palestine and the surrounding communities have since reported headaches, nausea, skin rashes, blurred vision, and other ailments. The letter from the senators expressed concern that despite reassurances from local, state, and federal agencies that the air and drinking water are safe, their anxiety persists. The letter further states that the residents of East Palestine and the surrounding community deserve to know if their health has been compromised by this disaster now and for years to come. Earlier this month, Vance and Brown wrote a separate letter to EPA Administrator Michael Regan and Ohio EPA Director Ann Vogel. The senators voiced dismay that the EPA wasn't testing for dioxins. Dioxins can cause cancer, damage the immune system, create reproductive and developmental problems, and interfere with hormones. EPA Regional Administrator Deborah Shore says that the agency will not test for dioxins, at least for now. In related news, EPA Administrator Michael Regan returned to East Palestine on February 28th. He acknowledged trust issues with the federal government among residents. Regan held a press conference to commemorate the opening of the EPA's Community Welcome Center. The center is designed as a resource for residents and business owners to get questions answered, sign up for home air monitoring, and learn more about cleaning services. Meanwhile, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb criticized an EPA plan to move waste from East Palestine to a landfill in Indiana. Holcomb says the material should go to the nearest facilities, not moved from the far eastern side of Ohio to the far western side of Indiana. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The House Committee on Homeland Security held a hearing yesterday. The subject was the ongoing border crisis and the scourge of fentanyl. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on what was discussed. Committee Chairman Mark Green opened up the hearing. Our homeland faces an unprecedented crisis along our southwest border. Green says it's a crisis that threatens all American families. Criminals, weapons, trafficked persons, and illicit narcotics are pouring across our borders in record numbers. The congressman blames the problems on what he calls Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas's open border policies. Representative Benny Thompson paints a different picture. The fact is, despite tough talk on border security, Republicans voted against necessary funding. Michigan resident Rebecca Kiesling shared the story of how Mexican fentanyl killed her two sons in July 2020. The boys aged 20 and 18 were with a 17-year-old girl and a drug dealer that supplied the trio with fentanyl. All three youths died shortly after taking the drug. Law enforcement made it clear to me that this fentanyl came from Mexico. It came from our southern border. Kiesling lives in a top-ranked U.S. city, but fentanyl does not discriminate. I found out from the um, funeral home that they have tons of these cases regularly. Kiesling's son Caleb was born in 2000. The number of U.S. drug overdose deaths that year was about 20,000. The number soared to over 100,000 the year he died in 2020. But Kiesling doesn't call what happened to her sons an overdose. And I don't use the term drug overdose because this was not an overdose, this was murder. My children got fake Percocets that were fentanyl. There was no Percocet in it at all. 
Many who die from fentanyl had no idea they were even taking the drug. Drug dealers sell fake pills to unsuspecting buyers. Arizona Sheriff Mark Lamb points the finger squarely at Washington. The weak policies that we have in place here on a national level and the lack of fortitude to secure our border has created an opportunity for the cartels. Sheriff Lamb says there has been a 600% increase in fentanyl in his community. In 2022, authorities there seized around 1.4 million pills, and those pills have fatal consequences. In the state of Arizona in 2021, we lost 44 children to poisonings under the age of 17. Seven were under the age of one year old. Lamb says if that doesn't mobilize the forces of the country to stop the problem, he doesn't know what will. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The top Democrat on the House Foreign Affairs Committee says he opposes a Republican TikTok bill. The legislation will give President Biden the power to ban the China-owned social media app and other apps. Representative Gregory Meeks says the bill would damage U.S. allegiances across the globe. He also says it would bring more companies into China's sphere and destroy jobs. Meeks says he believes concerns about TikTok are justified and offered a far narrower alternative. Republican Committee Chair Michael McCall sponsored the bill. It would grant the administration new powers to ban the ByteDance-owned app. A ban would require passage by the full House and the Senate before the president can sign it into law. Twitter is tackling threats of violence on its platform. A new policy states that users can be permanently suspended for making certain statements. Here's the story. Twitter is banning the incitement and glorification of violence or harm. It rolled out the violent speech policy on Tuesday, aimed at tackling threats of violence on the platform. It reads, Twitter is a place where people can express themselves, learn about what's happening, and debate global issues. However, healthy conversations can't thrive when violent speech is used to deliver a message. An example of violent speech? Violent threats. Twitter describes those as threats to kill, torture, sexually assault, or otherwise hurt someone. Users also can't wish, hope, or express desire for harm. This includes hoping for others to die, suffer illnesses, tragic incidents, and more. This marks a reversal from Twitter's previous policy that said wishing or hoping for someone to experience physical harm was not against the company's rules. So what happens if someone violates the policy? It states, in most cases, we will immediately and permanently suspend any account that violates this policy. But this doesn't apply to all violations. Offenders of less severe violations may be temporarily locked out of their accounts, although they risk a permanent suspension if they continue to violate the policy after regaining access to their accounts. However, there are exceptions to the new rules, such as hyperbolic and consensual speech between friends, satire, or artistic expression, and more. Although describing himself as a free speech absolutist when taking over Twitter, Elon Musk said that he'll make sure violent speech won't spread on the platform. Musk previously made headlines for reinstating controversial accounts such as Andrew Tate, the Babylon Bee, and more. He did ban Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, after a series of anti-Semitic remarks. The House passes a resolution disapproving of ESG investing, specifically a Labor Department rule that allows retirement plan managers to invest based on environmental, social, and governance priorities. 
The Labor Department's rule affects retirement funds that collectively invest $12 trillion on behalf of over 150 million Americans. Republican lawmakers claim the Labor Department is politicizing investment by allowing fund managers to pursue the liberal causes characteristic of ESG and that it allows them to sacrifice clients' profits. Democrats argue that restricting ESG is meddling in investors' freedoms. The measure is now headed to the Senate. If the bill reaches President Biden's desk, the White House has warned he would veto it. The measure will need just a simple majority to pass the Senate. Republicans hope for a vote of at least 50 to 49 in favor of the measure, given Democratic Senator Manchin's support and Democratic Senator John Fetterman's absence. President Biden is planning to raise some taxes, including ones that target billionaires. This is part of his plan to cut the budget deficit. I want to make it clear, I'm going to raise some taxes. If any of you are billionaires out there, you're going to stop paying at 3%. Not a joke. The idea that a billionaire, we used to have 600 or so in the United States of America, now there's 1,000. The idea that they pay at a rate that is lower than the rate of a police officer, a school teacher, a nurse, is bizarre. The highest U.S. tax rate is about 43%. The White House calculations rely on measuring billionaire investment growth, unrealized gains not counted in taxable income. But even with that taken into account, PolitiFact reports, quote, under today's laws, the 25 highest earning billionaires paid an average tax rate of 16%. That site adds that teachers and other workers pay effective tax rates between 0 to 15%. On March 9th, Biden will be laying down the details of his budget proposal to Congress. In the proposal, he vowed to cut the budget deficit by $2 trillion over 10 years. Biden also promises that the tax hikes will not affect Americans making less than $400,000 a year. That's a promise he made during the 2020 presidential campaign. The president has challenged Republicans to release their own proposals and to negotiate over those plans. Republicans are threatening not to raise the U.S. debt limit unless Biden agrees to sharp spending cuts. Biden made the remarks yesterday in Virginia Beach, Virginia. He was at an event focused on government health care programs under Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act. Biden has vowed to strengthen support for those and other federal programs. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill are turning their attention to the nation's workforce, but the approaches differ across the aisle. Democrat Senators Murray and Schumer have introduced the PRO Act, which stands for Protecting the Right to Organize. It seeks to help workers negotiate for better working conditions and prevent employers from misclassifying workers as independent contractors. Meanwhile, Republicans are focusing on preventing unions from imposing on individual workers. Let's get some analysis. Joining me now is National Right to Work Committee President Mark Mix. Thanks for coming on to discuss this important topic, Mark. Kevin, it's great to be on with you. Thanks for the opportunity. It's uh, it's an exciting time for right to work. It's an exciting time for labor policy in America as Congress has stepped up their interest and uh, several states have as well. Congressman Joe Wilson, a Republican in South Carolina, reintroduced the National Right to Work Guarantee Bill. It would shield all Americans from having to pay union dues to get or keep a job. In your view, what impact would this ha- measure have on the labor market? 
Well, first of all, it's a really a really interesting bill. It's a, it, Kevin, it's a one-page bill. doesn't add a single word to federal law. It simply goes into the 1935 law that was passed by Congress that gave union officials the ability to have a worker fired if they didn't tender dues or fees to a private organization. You know, eight out of 10 Americans believe it's wrong to force a worker to pay union dues or fees in order to work in America. So uh, Congressman Wilson's bill is an important part of the debate about union power in America today. Uh, Rand Paul introduced the bill on the Senate side. It came in with, I think, 33 co-sponsors in the House and 22 in the Senate. We're very excited about the bill being back into this Congress. Whether we can get it done or not and get it passed to the White House and maybe get a signature on it is probably a, a bridge too far. But the important aspect is, is that the American public will get to see who's for compulsion and who's for freedom in the American workplace. That's what Congressman Wilson and Senator Rand Paul want to accomplish this session of Congress. A one-page bill, something rare, and it eliminates that coercion, like you were saying. Now, a study in 2015 found that workers in non-right-to-work states earned over 15% more than those in right-to-work states. What's your response to this? Yeah, you know, that study comes from the Economic Policy Institute, which is funded by the AFL-CIO, so it's no surprise that they would try to make right-to-work about something more than individual freedom and try to bring in economic statistics. Obviously, if you adjust for cost of living, and they don't do this, they did it once, and we caught them, and it showed that workers in right-to-work work states have more disposable income, up to $5,300 more in disposable income than workers in forced unionism states, in the 23 states that have forced unionism. So when you adjust for cost of living, which is something you have to do in order to compare apples to apples, if you will, it's very hard to compare uh, rent cost in New York City to rent cost in Provo, Utah. When you do that, you adjust for cost of living, we find out that workers in right-to-work states are way better off when it comes to disposable income. Being able to navigate this, comparing apples to apples, people who are opposed to right-to-work laws say they will lead to lower union membership and, as a result, lead to declining health care coverage because unions, they say, play an instrumental role in fighting for these benefits. Your reaction? Yeah, Kevin, actually, that's not true either. Um, you know, in, in the right-to-work states this year in 2022, union officials, I think, gained something like 268,000 jobs, uh, union members, excuse me, not jobs, union members. And in 16 of the 27 right-to-work states, union membership actually increased. In several states, if you take out California from the non-right-to-work states, the forced unionism states only created 3,000 new union members. If you take out just California and you take the other 22 states, only 3,000 new members in those forced unionism states States compared to what was 158,000 or 85,000 net in right-to-work states. So, you know, right-to-work freedom is good for unions, it's good for workers. You know, I think the one thing that union officials have to have in order to be successful is they have to have jobs. And if you look at where jobs are being created in, in the manufacturing sector and in the private sector in general, you find out that they're going to the right-to-work states. In fact, uh, manufacturing job growth from 2011 to 2021 was 10 times higher in right-to-work states than forced unionism states. And if you're a union official in the state of Michigan that picked up 49,000 new union members last year in 2022, I don't know why you would want to repeal right-to-work because jobs are coming back to Michigan and giving union officials the opportunity to sell their product to workers. They can't force them to pay dues in Michigan because it's a right-to-work state, one of 27, but they can find that there's more job creation there and more opportunities to recruit new members to the union. A potential increase in union membership, something counterintuitive. Mark Mix, president of the uh, National Right to Work Committee, thank you so much for joining us. Kevin, appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. A House Select Committee dedicated to countering the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, held its first hearing yesterday. Testimony outlined threats posed by the communist regime and what can be done in response. 
NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the summary. The committee's chairman, Representative Mike Gallagher, opened the hearing with a call for action, asking lawmakers to act with urgency. It's not a polite tennis match. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. And the most fundamental freedoms are at stake. Four witnesses gave testimony. Matthew Pottinger, the former Deputy National Security Advisor, put emphasis on opening people's eyes to how the U.S. has become too complacent. He highlighted concerns about China's influence on technology and censorship and suggested finding ways to help people in China access a free flow of information online. I think you can punch holes in the Great Chinese Firewall. I think we've not made a concerted effort, a public-private effort with Silicon Valley firms uh, leading the way. Retired Army Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster says the U.S. should prioritize expediting delivery of weapons and munitions to Taiwan. He was interrupted by two protesters that yelled and held up signs. Your sign, your sign is upside down. McMaster called the eruptions indicative of the influence the CCP's United Front Work Department has had. They have reinforced to some degree what you might call a bit of a curriculum of self-loathing that has taken hold in academia for many years. They, they, they reinforce, I think, the idea that America is the problem in the world. And only if America disengages, or in this case, becomes more passive, uh, that things will get better. The retired general concluded that's why the work of the committee was vitally important. He expects the committee to reveal the aggression of the CCP and what's at stake for Americans, citizens of the free world, and the Chinese people. What kind of world do we wish to live in? Do we wish to live in a fundamentally free world led by the United States? Or do we wish to live in a totalitarian police state led by the Chinese Communist Party? Committee Chair Mike Gallagher outlined why Americans should care about threats posed by the Chinese regime and why it's important to selectively decouple the U.S. and Chinese economies. It's not a distant over there threat, it's a right here at home threat. Take Chinese spy balloon, CCP police stations on American soil, uh, Chinese students being harassed and physically assaulted on American campuses, um, and then just look at the plight of Hong Kong that I mentioned at the end, which eviscerated the idea of one country, two systems. Gallagher says when he visited Taiwan, leaders repeatedly cited issues of Hong Kong as evidence of threats from the CCP spreading. It's my belief that what happens inside China's borders, what happens even in Xinjiang, won't stay there. That increasingly they're perfecting a model of total techno-totalitarian control that they want to export around the world. Thirteen Republicans and eleven Democrats sit on the committee. It will not write legislation, but draw attention to competition between the U.S. and China and make policy recommendations. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. FBI Director Christopher Wray says a leak from a Chinese lab likely caused the COVID-19 pandemic. That follows a Department of Energy report that concluded the same. Here's Wray on Fox News discussing the investigation. The Chinese government seems to me has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate uh, the work here, the work that we're doing, the work that our U.S. government and, and close foreign partners are doing. Ray says the FBI has assessed for quite some time now that a lab leak was probably the culprit. Four other agencies, along with a national intelligence panel, still judge that the pandemic was likely the result of a natural transmission. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. government has not reached a definitive conclusion and consensus on the pandemic's origins. Dr. Marty McCary testified before Congress on the topic yesterday. 
He says it was a no-brainer that COVID came from the Wuhan Institute. He added it was only an issue because the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, funded the lab. McCary also mentioned how two leading virologists told Dr. Fauci in January 2020 that COVID was likely from the lab. McCary says both scientists changed their tune just days later in the media. He added that both scientists later received $9 million in funding from the NIH. The NIH maintains that evidence suggests COVID originated naturally. And coming up, how much money has the U.S. sent to Ukraine and what exactly has it gone to? A group of senators wants to create a new oversight watchdog to investigate. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has a new book out. Supporters showed up at a Florida bookstore hoping to see the governor and maybe have a book signed. That and more when we return. A bipartisan quartet of senators are making a request to Congress. They want the chamber to create a new watchdog to investigate and oversee how U.S. monetary assistance to Ukraine has been handled. Senator John Kennedy announced the proposal. In his remarks, he said American taxpayer money going to Ukraine is not meant as an act of charity. Instead, it's meant to bolster U.S. national security. U.S. aid to Ukraine has jumped to as much as $113 billion, providing extensive military weapon systems and ammunitions, as well as measures designed to keep the Ukrainian government functioning. Kennedy says the money is too much for normal bureaucratic channels alone and needs an inspector general focused on watching over it. The Ukraine watchdog proposal is patterned after another similar one aimed at aid of Afghanistan created in 2008. Multiple reports from that time documented billions of dollars lost to waste, fraud, and abuse. The Supreme Court has slashed an IRS penalty against a taxpayer who didn't report foreign bank accounts. The 5-4 ruling reduces businessman Alexandru Bittner's penalty from $2.72 million to $50,000. Bittner is a dual Romanian U.S. citizen. He had several non-U.S. personal bank accounts and owned stock in a number of Romanian corporations that also had foreign bank accounts. While living abroad, Bittner had limited contact with the U.S. When he returned to the United States in 2011, he came to learn that he should have filed U.S. tax returns while living in Romania. He then filed corrected forms for five years' worth of taxes. The financial penalty was initially set at $50,000 for the non-wilful violations, but the IRS upped it to $2.72 million based off each account Bittner failed to report, not each time he failed to file. The IRS took the position that he had violated the law a full 272 times. The Supreme Court's majority opinion says the penalty should be calculated per report, not per bank account, with the fine being $10,000 for each of five years missed. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot has lost her re-election bid. Votes tallied yesterday showed two of her rivals will be moving on to a runoff election in April. Paul Vallis secured the top spot with close to 35% of the vote. That's according to the Chicago Tribune with around 90% of precincts reporting. Vallis is the former public school's chief in Chicago and Philadelphia. He ran unsuccessfully for Chicago mayor in 2019. Brandon Johnson took the second spot in the runoff race with just over 20% of the vote. Lightfoot had around 16%. Here's Lightfoot and Johnson after the results yesterday. We were fierce competitors in these last few months, um, but I will be rooting and praying for our next mayor to deliver uh, for the people of the city for years to come. 
If tonight is proof of anything, it's proof that anything is possible, Chicago. That we can build a Chicago as big and as generous as our promises. That City Hall can truly belong to the people. I can't do this by myself, y'all. Are y'all with me? We can build a better, stronger, safer Chicago, and tonight is just the beginning. Lightfoot was looking to serve a second four-year term. She campaigned in 2019 on ending corruption, but her handling of the pandemic, protests, a teacher strike, and a spike in crime took away her popular support. Chicago had over 800 murders in 2021, the most in a quarter century. The murder rate dropped 14 percent in 2022, but was still around 40 percent higher than in 2019. Lightfoot claims the 2022 drop in murders and shootings shows her strategies like hiring more police were working. Polls show public safety is by far the top concern for Chicago residents. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' new book hit bookstore shelves yesterday. The book is titled The Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival. Supporters lined up outside a store in Leesburg, Florida, where DeSantis was expected to appear and sign copies. I love the things that uh, Governor DeSantis is doing. Um, as a parent, I have two kids, and I like his uh, focus on bringing uh, power back to the to parents to decide how they should educate their kids. I am 1,000% you know, proud of what he is you know, doing for Florida. I think he's done all the right things for my sake, my point of view. Um, I think he's done great for Florida, and I just don't know why he wouldn't do great as a president. DeSantis is expected to launch a presidential bid after Florida's legislative session ends this spring. He has positioned himself as a leader in the Republican war against the so-called woke agenda. Many conservatives believe liberals are trying to push that agenda on public education across the country. Protesters stood near the bookstore holding placards that read, teach the truth and ban guns, not books. Oregon's governor is drawing attention as well, not for a book, but for a home project. She's having a dual natural gas and propane backup generator installed at her official residence after campaigning on a promise to transition away from fossil fuels. The project comes to light as the debate over banning natural gas in homes and buildings heats up across the nation. Just weeks ago, Eugene became the first Oregon city to ban natural gas hookups in all new constructions. Backers of the ban say they are just getting started. According to DHM research, 70% of those surveyed oppose the Eugene gas ban. A citizen petition is now being circulated to put the issue on the ballot in May. But bans are being considered elsewhere in the state. These prohibitions put Oregon in line with its West Coast neighbors, where restrictions are widespread and growing. Going in the opposite direction, 20 U.S. states controlled by conservative legislatures have made it illegal for cities to restrict fossil fuel use in buildings. American Airlines has changed its policies to guarantee children can sit next to an adult traveling with them. The issue has taken center stage since President Joe Biden mentioned it in the State of the Union address. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg announced a special dashboard his department will publish next week. It will show which airlines have similar guarantees at no extra cost. United Airlines announced last week it's working to make sure kids under 12 years old can sit with their families without additional fees, while Americans' policy applies to kids 14 and younger. Delta Airlines says it works with families on a case-by-case basis and does not charge fees. 
Southwest says families with kids six and younger board early to increase the likelihood of finding seats next to each other. Kawasho Foods USA has recalled one lot of canned shrimp. The company cites health concerns, saying the product may have been underprocessed. Underprocessing could lead to the potential for spoilage organisms or pathogens. The canned shrimp was sold at multiple retailers, including Walmart, Safeway, and Alverston's across California, Utah, Arizona, and Colorado. The geisha medium shrimp is packaged in a four-ounce metal can. The lot being recalled is LGC12W12E22 with a Best Buy date of May 12, 2026 on the bottom of the can. The company says consumers should not use the product even if it doesn't look or smell spoiled. Consumers who bought the retailed cans are urged to return it to the place of purchase for a full refund. Antamins is bringing back the window design to packages of its baked goods. Back in 2021, the company announced it would temporarily remove the cellophane window on each box that displays the treat inside. Antamin said the change was necessary due to a supply chain disruption caused by Hurricane Ida. Customers were very upset about the package change and took to social media to make their displeasure known. Antamin's parent company told the Today Show the window boxes are now back in stores. And just ahead, China is outpacing the U.S. in building warships. That's the message from the U.S. Navy secretary, but he adds that the U.S. still has a leg up. Find out what he says. And a Pakistani police force is at the front line in Pakistan's war on terrorism. But the force lacks funds and is constantly targeted in attacks. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Warnings about Beijing's military expansion are growing louder. The latest comes from U.S. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro. He says China is outpacing the U.S. in one key area. The U.S. is falling behind China in terms of warship production. That's the warning from U.S. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro when he addressed the National Press Club. The Navy chief says Beijing seeks more than 400 vessels by 2030, up from the current 340. This compares to the less than 300 ships the U.S. now possesses. The Pentagon plans to field 350 warships by 2045, which still lags behind China. And that isn't counting the retirement of older ships. Del Toro points to Beijing's shipyard output as a real threat. While China has 13 shipyards churning out naval vessels, the U.S. has only seven. Del Toro says that a key factor behind the gap is that the U.S. is struggling to find skilled labor, but communist China sees no restrictions on its labor use. He explains they use slave labor in building their ships, but that's what we're up against, so it does present a significant advantage. He cautions that the potential shift in naval dominance might rattle the world order, considering China's threats to Taiwan and the South China Sea. But this doesn't mean that the U.S. has lost its position as a superpower at sea. Del Toro stresses, quote, In many ways, our shipbuilders are better shipbuilders. That's why we have a more modern, more capable, more lethal navy than they do. They script their people to fight. We actually train our people to think. Worth noting, the U.S. Navy still has more tonnage than China, meaning larger and heavier armed vessels and stronger missile launch capabilities. 
Exactly how much loyalty does the Chinese Communist Party demand from its members? A lot, based on certain rules. And it goes so far that China-based staff at one foreign company are being asked to wear their Communist Party pin badges at work. The emblems signify membership in the party and are meant to display the wearer's loyalty to Beijing. The company is British consulting firm Ernst & Young. It's one of the globe's big four accounting firms. According to Financial Times, the Communist Party Committee at the company's China office made the demand directing all party members to wear the pins daily starting last week. Employees got the memo via email. The directive also comes at an important time for lawmaking in Beijing, just ahead of China's annual parliamentary meetings, known as the Two Sessions. The summit will see Chinese leader Xi Jinping officially confirmed for his third term, plus new officials appointed and legislative decisions made. The lawmaking body has been dubbed China's rubber stamp legislature, owing to how it passes every bill the CCP proposes without fail. A province in Pakistan is at the front line of the country's fight against terrorism, but the local police force lacks resources and the force itself is constantly targeted. The biggest problem is the number of personnel, which is a little low. We have good number of weapons inside our ground floor store. This is a targeted area and we're absolutely face to face with the militants. Islamist militants have launched a series of bloody attacks against the Heber Patunkwa Provincial Police. The police face almost daily attacks. The deadliest single attack on the force was in late January, when a mosque bombing killed over 80 police personnel. Do the police need more resources? They absolutely do. We've tried to make uh, additional resources available to them uh, at the worst particular time of financial constraint. The police outposts stand between Pakistan's so-called settled areas and a recently incorporated tribal region between Afghanistan and Pakistan. It was once a hideout for the world's most wanted militants. It remains a hotbed for terrorists in the Pakistani Taliban. I looked at some data which showed that overall casualties in the war on terror over the last 20 years, 77% of them countrywide have been in Khyber Pukhtunkhwa and Fata. So that tells you the level of exposure that we have uh, and our role as a frontline state. The former Khyber Pukhtunkhwa police chief said the number of killings of police has risen from 21 in 2020 to 54 in 2021 and to 119 in 2022. Authorities expect this year to exceed those numbers due to the 80 officers killed in the mosque bombing. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak faces a test of his leadership over concerns about his new deal on post-Brexit trading arrangements in Northern Ireland. We'll return with that and more after this break. With the war raging on in Ukraine, Finland has started building a barrier fence along its eastern border with Russia. The Finnish border force started prepping to build a pilot fence this week, clearing the land along a two-mile stretch. The project started at the end of 2022, and the pilot fence should be finished by the end of June. The country doesn't plan to build barrier fence along the entire border, but will focus on border crossing points. In total, it could include 80 to 160 miles or 10 to 20 percent of the border. 
The nation has already allocated funds for fencing along those target areas, and construction is planned for the next two years. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is confident that his Brexit deal fix, the Windsor framework, will be supported. And it is supported by the Labour Party, but concerns about the details of the deal remain. And he still needs to garner support from unionist and Eurosceptic members of Parliament. Otherwise, the Prime Minister risks looking like a weak leader who can only unify his opposition, but not his own party. More on this from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. MPs are currently reviewing the Windsor framework, the proposed solution to the Northern Ireland Protocol's issues. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak insists it's a good fix, but so far, concerns remain. For example, some EU laws will still apply in Northern Ireland, and hence the European Court of Justice will still have some jurisdiction in the region. And the so-called Stormont Break, which gives the UK the ability to veto new EU laws in Northern Ireland, is said to be unclear. The framework proposes a green lane and a red lane system. Green for UK-only goods, red for those going to the EU. Green lane goods won't need to fill in lengthy custom forms, but still need to fill in a digital declaration. Speaking to local businesses in Northern Ireland, Sunak summarised the break. We created this new thing called the Stormont Break, which means that your assembly is going to be able to have a look at any of the new EU laws that come down the pipe and say, hang on, if there's something that's really serious, that we think is going to have a really big impact, and we can't find any way to resolve it, then we have the ability to say no, that we can block it. And at which point the UK government will have a veto on that new rule. And that puts you in the driving seat. So that is a really powerful new mechanism that we've created. Before pulling the brake, Northern Irish parties will have to go through consultations in Stormont with Westminster, with affected groups and businesses and with the EU. To pull the brake, at least 30 members of the Legislative Assembly from at least two parties will need to sign a petition of concern. This will then suspend the new EU law. Westminster will need to discuss with Northern Irish parties and gain cross-community support before it can agree to apply the law. Under exceptional circumstances, Westminster can ignore the petition of concern and apply the law anyway. And if the law is suspended, the EU can take so-called remedial measures. But Alliance Party leader Naomi Long is uncertain about the break. She said, We do have concerns with respect to how the Stormont break will operate, it remains unclear in terms of how it will function, at what level the trigger will be set. And DUP MP Sammy Wilson says no EU law should apply to Northern Ireland. Speaking in Parliament on Monday, Keir Starmer said Labour will support the deal if it works for Northern Ireland. And we will stick to our word. We will not snipe. We will not seek to play political games. And when the Prime Minister puts this deal forward for a vote, Labour will support it and vote for it. Sunak is seeking to garner support from the Northern Irish parties and Tory MPs. Politically, he's now in a sensitive position. With Labour on his side, he doesn't need the Eurosceptics and the Unionists to win the parliamentary vote on the deal, meaning he'll win because of Labour and look like a weak leader. The Foreign Secretary, meanwhile, has said the EU has made many concessions. If the deal falls through, it could undo the negotiations and it may damage the relationship between the UK and the bloc. Sunak says he's confident the deal will be supported, but it remains to be seen if this is all just bluster or if it will become a reality. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. 
President Erdogan of Turkey says the country's general elections won't see a delay. He indicated the vote could take place in May, three months after the devastating earthquake. Let this be clear to everyone. This nation will do what is necessary on May 14th, God willing. Turkey's 2023 election was originally set for June 18th. The incumbent president had earlier said he would move the vote up to May. That was to avoid a holiday in June. But since the massive earthquake last month, many have felt the need to postpone the vote. Concerns are whether election authorities can make arrangements for the 14 million people in the quake zone. Erdogan's popularity has declined amid soaring costs of living. His government's response to the earthquake is also drawing criticism. Polls show the natural disaster is by far the biggest electoral challenge facing him. And coming up, a tech fair is underway in Barcelona. Organizers expect as many as 80,000 visitors. Find out what's generating the most buzz. Denmark's National Museum is showcasing discoveries unearthed by hobbyists. Find out what the amateur treasure hunters have unearthed. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. SpaceX and NASA are set to launch a joint mission to the International Space Station on Thursday, just after midnight. The first attempt for the Crew-6 team was scrubbed on Monday, minutes before blastoff. NASA said there was an unusual data signature with a fluid that is used to start the Falcon 9 rocket's engines. A clogged ground filter caused the faulty reading. The issue has now been fixed. NASA says the new launch is scheduled for 12.34 a.m. Thursday, weather permitting. Also set to launch into space, the DNA of four late presidents. Celestic, a space burial company, is sending the symbolic remains of George Washington, Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, and Ronald Reagan on its Enterprise flight. This special launch was fittingly announced on February 20th, which is President's Day. DNA samples from some non-former presidents will also be a part of this trip, including some from Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, his wife, and Star Trek engineer James Scotty Duhon. AI-powered chatbot avatars are set to wow visitors at the annual Mobile World Congress trade fair. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on the trends and what's generating the most buzz. Mobile World Congress is the world's most influential meeting for the mobile tech industry. Organizers are expecting as many as 80,000 visitors from around the world. So this year's show is going to be about big essential trends around 5 and 6G, what's happening with augmented reality, and how startups are going to be using wireless technology in the future. A number of companies are planning to show off their metaverse experiences. I think the importance of the metaverse is, is being able to have a space where even if we're virtually, uh, if we're apart and distant, we can come together and actually fill in the gaps that uh, in a meeting that in an interpersonal meeting uh, can bring about. And I think that's what the metaverse eventually might be. The metaverse might provide a glimpse of the future, but doubts about virtual reality have surfaced as well. I think that most technology companies learned that they were a little bit bullish on AR and VR and metaverse, and that kind of bit them in the butt. And so this year, everyone's being a lot more conservative about how they talk about augmented reality and the metaverse. 
dramatic advances in AI have seized the tech world's attention. OpenAI's ChatGPT is a prime example. It sparked concerns about technology's unintended consequences. A couple of years ago, AI just meant, you know, being able to take great photos on a smartphone and having software improve photos. These days, with, you know, with ChatGPT, for example, being a big thing, there's a bigger conversation around it, the ethics of it, but also how it plays into other aspects of, of smartphone computing. Barcelona has hosted the Mobile World Congress since 2006. Event organizers expect more than 2,000 exhibitors at this year's event which runs from Monday, February 27th until Thursday, March 2nd. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A new exhibition at Denmark's National Museum features an array of artifacts unearthed by hobbyists, including one of the largest gold treasures in Danish history. NTD's Andrew Thomas digs for the details. It didn't take a professional to find these Roman gold coins or rings with precious stones. Ordinary hobbyists have unearthed thousands of artifacts in Denmark. Some have made extraordinary discoveries. When the metal detector sort of came in in the 80s, there were some very far-sighted museum people who said, we need to work with these people. We need to make sure that they are absorbed into the local museums and so that we educate them and they become more interested in history. Many hobbyists start young. Curiosity often leads to educational and professional pursuits, like for this archaeology student. I've always loved history. Uh, it started with the, the Second World War, the First World War, um, Titanic actually, and then um, suddenly I really became interested to the prehistory. And um, yeah, the metal detector was just the perfect choice. Uh. One of his discoveries is part of the exhibition, a golden medieval ring that features the face of Jesus Christ. But a 64-year-old novice topped that discovery in December 2020 after he dug up one of the greatest gold treasures in Danish history. I mean, I didn't know anything about it, but I knew that, I mean, when it was that old, I mean, from 300 and year 350, it was a feeling of uh, being humbled that you can be that lucky. Archaeologists now say the loot had been buried for around 1,500 years. The treasure includes over two pounds of gold. Ordinary Danes can make history, and the curator hopes the exhibition may inspire others to pick up a metal detector. That I want the audience to understand that our museum is being built by ordinary people. We can all play a part in building the museum for the future because we're building our collections together. The hunt for Denmark's past at Denmark's National Museum in Copenhagen will run until February next year. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, after seeing Shen Yun for the first time, Miss USA Continental Worldwide said it will become a tradition of hers. Many audience members said they haven't seen anything like it before. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. The world premiere classical Chinese dance company Shen Yun performed in Salt Lake City recently. Audience members said it was like nothing they've seen before. There were six performances in February.
They don't even look like they're getting tired. Like they, they, <laughs> it's amazing to me being a dancer myself. I see some of the stuff they're doing and I'm like, man, that would just wear me out and make me exhausted. But I, I love it. It's awesome. They, you can tell that they work really, really hard to get to where they're at. Oh my gosh, it was absolutely incredible. It was like nothing that I have ever seen before. Beauty pageant queen Danielle Cox was impressed after seeing Shen Yun performing arts for the first time at the Eccles Theatre in Salt Lake City in February. The performances were phenomenal. The dancers were so talented. The singing, the piano, the music, all of it. You hear even the presenter, um, the lady that was presenting, her Chinese was like poetry. The way she spoke and the way she presented herself in such a lovely and peaceful way. Audience so, member Lisa Fifield is a former ballet dancer who performed in China. It's not her first time watching Shen Yun, which presents China before communist rule. Every time I see it, I love it. Uh, it brings tears to my eyes when I think about the dancers that I love in China and the, just the weight and burden that we all felt under the Communist Party. And when you come to a Shen Yun performance, you can expect to see dancers that are free. Dancers that are truly living um, by good principles. I love that they're trying to tell the story of where China is right now. And I feel like it's really trying to fight for the freedom of, of the people of China, um, even though they're not here. Audience members also praise the patented backdrop technology, which allows performers to interact with it to tell stories from China's ancient past. That was terrific. The first time they popped out of the screen, we both went, oh, how'd they do that? And then we watched every single next time they did it. We couldn't wait to see them coming in and popping off and watching how they coordinate that. It was just incredible. I've never seen that technology. Shen Yun's mission is to revive genuine traditional Chinese culture, which patrons found uplifting. Well, I really like just the upbeat, um, kind of positive message. I, you know, I think there was a lot about just humanity and, and, the, and how much we can contribute to one another and how we depend on each other to, to kind of move forward in life. And so I like that. You leave feeling good. So I think there's a, an uplifting good message of just, you know, compassion and goodness and kindness kind of overcoming um, evil or bad. I just hope they know how much we all love it and enjoy it. Just all the surprises there are, it's just really cool to see. I can't believe that this is the first year that I've been to this. It's such an incredible performance. It's something that, that um, definitely will become a tradition of mine. NTD News, Salt Lake City, Utah. A group of flight passengers got a special treat this week. This is the view from EasyJet Flight 1806. The plane flew over the Northern Lights in Northern Europe Monday. Passenger Ross Sticka shared these captivating images. He said the pilot flew in a circle to give them a good view of the famed lights, and crew members turned off the cabin lights so everyone could see. Sticka said he and his family flying to Manchester, England, were sitting on the left side and got lots of pictures. Meanwhile, eyewitness video revealed a similar spectacular display in the sky over Alaska. The video, shared to social media, shows footage from a time-lapse camera in the early hours of Monday. Real-time video, filmed by the photographer on Sunday night, captured rare red pulses. According to the UK Met Office, the Northern Lights, or Aurora Borealis, occur because of solar activity when charged particles in the solar wind collide with molecules in the Earth's upper atmosphere. 
The company Heinz says after an international search, it's finally made contact with the so-called ketchup boat guy. Dominican sailor Elvis Francois survived weeks at sea with little more than ketchup to sustain him. Once Francois was back on dry land, Heinz wanted to give him a new boat, but the company struggled to find him. Heinz reached out to both the Dominican government and the Colombian Navy that rescued Francois and then turned to social media. The company says the search spanned six continents and took thousands of messages, shares, and likes, but finally ended in success. As far as we know, the company plans to buy Francois a new state-of-the-art boat. And that's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.